Alongside this, she is currently finishing her master's degree in exercise science at Concordia University, Chicago. In this episode, Susan talks about... Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Susan Lopez. Susan is a seven-year Army veteran who served between 2000 and 2007 in both the Army Reserves and active duty, with two deployments in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Susan currently works with the Army's Health and Holistic Fitness Program, bringing education centered around nutrition and lifestyle to frontline forces. Daily, she works alongside soldiers at the ground level to ensure a force that is ready to perform at all times. Susan also owns a private practice working with military entrant hopefuls, police, and firefighters. Susan received her bachelor's degree and completed a 900-hour internship at the University of Houston in Texas before becoming a registered dietitian. She then went on to become part of less than 1% of dietitians to hold a board certification in sports nutrition. For almost a decade, Susan has been creating programs for tactical athletes, including firefighters, police officers, and military service members. What her role as a tactical dietitian entails, her general nutritional recommendations, as well as common nutritional faults, her recommendations for first responders on how to manage energy balance throughout their shift, and advice to anyone considering a career as a tactical dietitian. Good afternoon, Susan, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. No worries, Susan. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and speak to me. And also a special shout out and thank you to uh, former guest Kate Colvin for introducing us and helping get this arranged. Yeah, she's amazing. I love her. Yeah, she's a stud. Um, Susan, obviously, I mean, you've chatted a little bit off air and stuff about uh, your background and that. But for anyone who hasn't, you know, come across you and your work, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your career, where you started out and where you're currently at now? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually got my first introduction into nutrition um, and food and and kind of everything that entails um, all the way back in 2000. So in 2000, I actually joined uh, the Army as a uh, food service specialist and nutrition care specialist. Um, I was 17, fresh out of high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And lo and behold, an Army Reserve recruiter walks into my senior English class and was like, hey, I got this great deal for you. You know, see the world, make money, learn skills, you know, all the things that they tell you. Um, and I was like, sure, that sounds great. You know, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I would love to get out of this town that I live in. So so I grew up in, in North Dakota. Um, and for anyone who's familiar with the United States, North Dakota doesn't have much in it. I think that there is probably um, more people in the city of Houston than there is in the entire state of North Dakota. Oh, wow. uh, it's yeah. very agricultural, um, very flat. Um, so I was like, okay, well let's, you know, I wanna get out of here. So this sounds good to me. Um, so 17, graduated high school. Um, a week later, uh, I was sitting in reception on my way to boot camp. Um, spent my 18th birthday in boot camp. Finished that. Um, went to my AIT, which for the Army is our advanced individual training, and got trained up as a military cook um, in Fort Lee, Virginia. And then I spent some time uh, down in Fort Sam Houston in Texas, er, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, um, being trained as a nutrition care specialist. Um, which essentially just means that I got education around uh, basic calorie and macro adjustments, um, texture modification, 
so that for the military, I could actually work as a cook and also a, a diet technician um, in a hospital setting. Um, so I did that. Um, like I said, I had initially signed up for the Army Reserve, but once I finished my time in basic training in AIT, um, I just, I loved it. Um, I loved the structure. Um, at that point in my life, you know, I was 18. It was the most physically challenging thing that I had ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say even, even emotionally and mentally challenging as well, too. Um, and, and, and it was just amazing. Um, so I had already made up my mind before I even went back home to start my reserve time um, that I would uh, go on active duty at some point. Um, I got back to my reserve unit back in North Dakota and they were like, well, you know, you need to spend a year here and then we can have that discussion about you breaking your contract um, to go active duty. So um, during that time, I was like, okay, well, while I'm here waiting, I'm going to try the college thing, um, see how that goes. I will tell you that it didn't go very well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, you know, I think my first semester um, in community college, um, I, I think I failed my yoga class, uh, to be perfectly honest. So um, even though I had said I was going to give it the good old college try, it wasn't going uh -huh. very well. Um, so during this time, this was around uh, 2001. Um, so of course, uh, in that year, 9-11 happened. Um, I was actually sitting in um, one of my college classes when it happened. Um, of course, um, they released everybody. Um, and I remember sitting in my car, um, just listening to the radio um, of everything that was happening um, in real time. Um, and that really just kind of solidified my decision um, to go on active duty. Um, you know, joining the military, I really didn't have any direction. Um, and I kind of credit the Army the short time that I had spent, you know, before going active duty for kind of helping me give, get some more direction with my life, kind of mm -hmm. feel like I had a little bit more purpose. I ended up loving nutrition, um, you know, so that is kind of what led me into what I do now as a registered dietitian. Uh, so I spent about five years on active duty. Um, and during that time, um, I did deploy uh, with my unit at the time. Um, I was with the 86 Combat Support Hospital out of Fort Campbell. Uh, Kentucky with the 101st Airborne. Um, we did deploy um, during the initial ground invasion. So I was actually there in March of 2003, um, which, you know, at that time I was still, I think, a 19-year-old kid. Um, so uh, it was it was definitely a unique experience, to say the least. Um, I did deploy again with that unit in 2004 and 2005. Um, and and just the difference between my first deployment and my second deployment, I mean, it was worlds apart. Um, I did spend both of those deployments in Iraq. Um, and then in 2007, um, I decided that I was gonna leave the military um, and actually be a mom um, and kind of try life on the civilian side. Um, and that was interesting. Um, again, I was kind of in the same place. I didn't really know what I was gonna do. <laughs> after the military um, and I kind of uh, just worked um, different jobs um, until I made the decision to go back to school and make nutrition my full-time gig. Um, so I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Houston uh, down in Texas, graduated from there in 2012, 
um, did my internship during that year also, um, and then sat for my credentialing exam in uh, 2013, I believe. Um, and uh, once I became a dietitian, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to work in the hospital. Sometimes people just think if you're a dietitian, dietitians all do the same thing. Um, but there's a lot of different niches in the, the dietetics uh, world. So I knew I didn't want to go work in a hospital. Um, so I did a couple of different things. I worked for a gym as a dietitian and a personal trainer. I worked in wellness. Um, I worked for the city of Houston um, as a contractor for a little bit, working on their diabetes and wellness programs for their employees. Um, I did end up in clinical for a little bit. Um, I actually ended up working as a clinical manager um, where I was overseeing kind of the operations uh, within the food service department and also uh, heading up a group of dietitians. Um, and then um, probably around um, 2017, um, I got wind of the Army uh, wanting to bring on dietitians who were going to specialize in um, health and wellness for frontline soldiers. So very similar to what the special operations community does with the Army as far as having dietitians and strength coaches. Um, they were going to now kind of bring that to the conventional forces. Um, so they were running a pilot. So I was fortunate enough to get hooked up with the contractors who were doing that and they brought me on as a performance dietitian. Um, and I've been doing that um, for the last year or so now. Um, and I also um, have a private practice as well, where I work with um, people who are looking to get into the military. Um, I work with police officers, firefighters, um, and a couple other uh, groups of people who are wanting to improve their health and their performance. But my focus is mainly with the tactical community. Um, and that's where I am now. Cool, thanks, Art Susan. Um, it's really interesting to hear, obviously, quite diverse background as well with your military service and then obviously uh, working in gym environment, the clinical environment to where you're at now with that. So there's a lot of different experiences and, you know, uh, environments to draw upon to take into your current practice as well. What was it like? Um, obviously you said it was 2002, you said you initially deployed to Iraq first time round and then 2004 was the second, was it? Yeah. So we actually, um, when I broke my reserve contract, um, I entered into active duty officially as an active duty soldier um, in January of 2003. Mm -hmm. um, I got to my unit um, and I think the, I had already gotten there. Um, the first iteration of people from that unit from the 86 cash had already deployed and were already um, staging in Kuwait. Um, and when I got to my unit, they were like, oh, well, you know, you're going to be on the second wave. So pack your bags. <laughs> and I'm like, I just got here. I just joined the army. I have no idea what's going on. Um, but okay, sounds good. I like adventure. So let's do this. Um, so, <laughs> so I think I was probably at my unit for less than a month. Um, I really hadn't even unpacked from my move. Um, and I was already on a plane headed overseas. Um, mm -hmm. So we were in Kuwait for uh, a couple of weeks um, once I got there, um, and and the night before the invasion kicked off, we staged. Um, of course, I mean there were it was 
I can't even tell you how long this convoy was, this ground convoy that I was part of, because I, I, I truly don't know. Um, you know, we, we weren't really privy to anything that was really going on other than, hey, we're, we're moving in. Um, so we spent five days traveling from a base in Kuwait to um, the nearest, uh, the nearest land, uh, excuse me, the nearest airstrip in Iraq that we could get to where they had planned on staging us. Um, it took us almost a week um, just during that time. And, and from what I was told later on, the actual, if you were to drive it straight from where we staged to where we ended up, it's only like a five or six hour drive is what I'm told. Um, but it took us almost a week um, wow, just okay. with, with everything that was happening. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, still at the time, I was pretty naive about everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't, didn't really have a sense of, of what was happening, I think, in the moment. Um, and all I remember is living for a week out of the back of a five-ton truck um, on top of a bunch of sandbags, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, but it was definitely, um, looking back on it, a, a lot of those things, I think, shaped kind of where I ended up now. Mm -hmm. um, when I went back in 2004, it was completely different. Um, I was living down the street from Saddam's Palace, um, which had become the American Embassy in the Green Zone at that time, working at the hospital um, on that same road. Um, you know, and I had floors and running water and, you know, internet. And when I went over the first time, um, you know, I, I was essentially digging my own bathroom uh, on a daily basis. So, so, so very, a lot of contrast there between my first and second deployment. <laughs> um, but again, I think a, a lot of that shaped who I became kind of later in life. Um, and when I became a dietitian, I knew that at some point I wanted to get back into a tactical setting. I mean, that was the goal kind of from the beginning. Um, so I sought out a lot of opportunities after I became a dietitian, even as a working in the gym that I was working at, we had the opportunity to do some work with the Wounded Warrior Program, and of course I jumped at that. Um, but now that I'm working back with the tactical community, it's just, it's a, it's a really good fit, um, and I'm really enjoying the work that I do, so. Nice, nice. And obviously, the work you're currently doing as a performance dietitian from the tactical community, what, what exactly does your role entail within that remit? So I'm currently working with an infantry brigade, um, and it's it's not quite on the same level as you would see in special operations. So there's a lot of differences between kind of the culture, the mindset, um, just the day-to-day -day challenges between conventional forces and special operations. Um, so a lot of my work entails making sure that um, the soldiers I'm working with are, one, meeting the standard, the physical standards, um, the height and weight standard, the body fat standards, um, and making sure that I'm helping them kind of deal with um, any day-to-day -day barriers that are coming up that are impeding their ability to improve their health um, or their performance. Um, I work uh, in, the, in the battalion that I work in, um, there's a high operational and training tempo. Um, there's also a support battalion within that brigade. And the support battalion um, that I work with, they're supporting multiple infantry units. So they are constantly doing different field problems. There's a lot of training going on. There's a lot of last minute details. 
Um, and then I'm working with soldiers who are getting ready for different schools. Um, so I have the opportunity to preach, uh, to teach a pre-ranger school uh, nutrition class as well. So um, that's one of the things that I love to do. Um, a lot of my job is also just making sure that soldiers aren't falling prey to a lot of the trendy and, and faddish kind of nutrition yeah. um, things that are out there. There's a, there's a lot of pressure to meet the standard and stay in shape. And um, soldiers are not, you know, they're not protected in any way from the same kinds of BS stuff that's out there that everybody else is exposed to. Um, so I do a lot of myth busting as well and just making sure that soldiers aren't taking things supplement wise that are dangerous for them, making sure they're staying hydrated. Um, that, that, that's a big one is just making sure that they're educated. Cool. Uh, that's refreshing to hear as well. I'm glad um, <laughs> the, the dietitians are having to deal with the same woes as us uh, strength conditioning coaches have to deal with yeah. from athletes. Like, Oh, I saw this cool workout on Instagram or YouTube. Have you seen it? It's like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I get that all the time. Um, and then always, uh, you know, we occasionally have, you know, height and weight measurements that we have to do with soldiers um, at each battalion. And it seems kind of like around that time is always when um, the most interesting things happen. Um, you know, grapefruit diets mm -hmm. and water fasting and, and things like that. Um, but there's a real danger there too when soldiers are, um, practicing some of those dieting methods, um, and, and also continuing to, uh, work hard, train hard. Um, a lot of times if they're doing field problems or they're out at the range, they're in full kit. Um, so there's a lot of danger there as far as making sure they're staying hydrated, um, that we're not seeing issues with like rhabdomyolysis or hyponatremia, mm -hmm. hypokalemia, um, cause that does happen, you know, it can happen with anybody when, you know, you're maybe trying to diet down, you know, cutting out sodium intake. Um, but then on top of that, you know, everybody's chugging water. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the things that I really have to watch out for and make sure that people are informed of. Cool. And like, obviously there's yourself there as a contractor working in that role. Is it, do you use, uh, correct me if I'm wrong saying, is it brigade level you're working at the moment? So we're actually working at the battalion level. Okay. Um, yep. So I work with one battalion and there's another dietitian work with another battalion. Um, as part of the pilot, not every battalion in the brigade had a dietitian on staff. Uh -huh. But with this new iteration that's going to be kicking off in the fiscal year, um, all the dietitians are actually going to move to brigade level, and then we're going to have uh, multiple battalions underneath um, our, our responsibility. We'll be responsible for multiple battalions. Cool. Um, this is going to be probably a little bit more challenging um, just from a manpower standpoint, but, but I think it'll be a good thing uh, long term. Nice. And obviously... Um, working at that level, you were saying you've got a lot of different demands for different job roles and people training for uh, either build-ups or different deployments or going to different schools and that. So how do you actually, you know, manage that as your role as a dietitian? Like how do you, um, you know, appropriate your time to each one of these tasks and stuff officially? 
Sure. So um, sometimes we have to work around the schedule of, of whatever each battalion or, or the brigade as a whole has mm -hmm. scheduled. Things come up last minute. You know, we put trainings on the calendar, um, classes on the calendar. We do one-on-ones. Um, and I would say at the battalion level, the battalion I'm with right now, um, at any given time, there's around 500 soldiers in that battalion. Um, once we move up to brigade level, um, the number of soldiers I have is probably going to triple. Um, so we, it, it's really difficult to see that many soldiers one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, so doing classes, um, group education um, is ideal. Um, however, with COVID restrictions, um, we've moved to more of a virtual platform. Um, and this has actually been um, a little bit better anyways, um, because some of the classes we do actually on common social media channels like Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So soldiers, uh, it, it's a lot easier for them to kind of tune in and watch kind of some of those clips and, and learn some different things. Um, we are, uh, you know, we try to have a good relationship with our strength coaches. Um, you know, there's different soldiers within each battalion who are kind of um, seated in a good position that they can kind of help us promote uh, within each battalion. So like some of our 68 whiskeys, our medics, um, in the support battalion, you're going to see 92 golfs, which are our cooks, um, also kind of helping to educate people. Um, so I think, you know, if a, for any dietitian who is maybe coming into that role, I think one of the best things you can do is kind of find your promoters within each battalion in each brigade um, and kind of use them to, one, help let people know that you're there, and then two, um, help spread uh, reliable information. So, so I think that's really important. Um, we try to meet with our leaders, our non-commissioned officers, our NCOs, um, to on a regular basis to give them education, which then also spills down into the lower enlisted ranks as well, uh, hopefully. Um, so just really just anything we can do to just make education and information that's reliable and accurate and more available to the soldiers is, is really important. Cool. And obviously you've been in, in this role uh, for a while now, uh, Susan. So over time, you know, how is your, your own like philosophy or your own like nutritional guidelines changed and adapted? And what is it currently sitting at as, it, as now? Uh, well, I think, um, I think probably over the last, you know, eight or nine years that I've been a dietitian, um, and, and even since I started working in nutrition and had my own personal interest, even before that, um, I think as you learn more um, and as you gain more experience, you know, your philosophy kind of um, evolves a little bit. And I think that that's, that's probably true in any profession that deals with uh, education. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I, I've learned being a dietitian is that there's no absolutes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nutrition isn't one size fits all. Um, periodization of nutrition according to um, training and individual goals is, is super important. Um, so, you know, I do get a lot of people who come to me with kind of these, these far out nutrition ideas. And I try to be open-minded as far as like, where are they coming from? 
you know, where's this information coming from? Where's their mindset at? And, and then just really trying to get them to a place where they're doing things better and safely as well. Um, as far as my own nutrition philosophy, I would say that I'm, I'm definitely not someone who, uh, you would consider the food police. I get that one a lot. Okay. I feel like anytime I'm uh, meeting someone new or I start working with a new client, it's like they immediately want to give me all their food confessions. Um, <laughs> you know, and I have to reel them back and say, "Home, oh, you know, it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to punish you for anything. You know, nothing that you do is, is going to, has any morality to it. You know, if you eat a piece of cake, you eat a piece of cake. That's fine. You know, it's okay. I eat cake too. Um, but, uh, but my nutrition philosophy is really just, you know, understanding, uh, how you're eating and the way you're feeling and, uh, the foods that you're taking in, you know, how it's going to affect your long-term goals and, and your training. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I've been fortunate to chat to a few different dietitians over my career in performance sport and stuff as well. And uh, they all echo the same sort of mantra as well. Um, you know, when chatting to athletes and stuff about the whole food confessional, because athletes and I'm guessing soldiers as well walk in, <laughs> just expect you to live this Spartan lifestyle of, you know, like the, the grilled chicken breast and rice and veg and nothing else, you know. <laughs> um, but it is interesting as well. I find that you say there, like, you know, people have wild and fixed ideas on nutrition. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something we see a lot within this field. Um, I know I, I've said to a lot of athletes over the years of, you know, when we approach our training, we look at it from so many different angles and there's so many different variables we can tweak and play with and stuff like that. But when it comes to nutrition, it seems to be people are all or nothing. It's like, oh no, you can't have carbs. The devil, you've got to be keto or, mm. oh no, you're an idiot. You've got to be on carbs. It's one or the other. And it's like very hard sold on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that all the time and it's, it, it's always a hot topic. And, and the truth really is, is that there is a middle ground. Yeah. Like you don't have to be all in or all out. Um, you really have to look at what it is you're doing on a, on a daily basis even, and, and kind of get your nutrition to synchronize up with that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a specific goal and you, you know, you may need a specific plan for a little while, but understanding how the nutrition supports your training goal it, it is super important. And um, I will tell you, I had this actually happen today with one of my clients. He uh, came and saw me for the first time a couple weeks ago. Um, relatively in shape, you know, very active, lifted, you know, ran, had done, um, you know, 10 miler, um, you know, the army 10 miler in the past and was very all about that. Had even done some work with special operations in the past and um, really following a low carb diet, but was feeling kind of fatigued, was, you know, trying to do some body recomp. And when we evaluated his nutrition, um, I, I straight out told him, I was like, you're not eating enough. Yeah. I was like, you're not eating enough calories. You're not eating enough carbohydrates. We kind of talked about the biology behind it. We talked about you know, metabolic efficiency and, and what are some things that could actually improve his performance and improve his body composition at the same time. He didn't really believe me. He was kind of like, Oh, I don't, you know, if I eat carbs, I'm just, I'm going to blow up, you know, I'm going to blow up. And I don't know about like all these calories you're giving me. Um, but he was like, I'll do it. You know, I trust you. I'm going to trust process. I'll do it. 
Um, so he comes in today and just phenomenal results, you know, has dropped, um, you know, almost five pounds, his body fat's gone down, his skeletal muscle mass has gone up, you know, before we even weighed him in, he was like, you know, I feel better, my workouts are better. Um, you know, so it's just, just a key example of how, you know, you can kind of be in the middle of that debate and start periodizing your nutrition accordingly and, and still see phenomenal results, especially if you have a lot of potential. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, we have that discussion a lot where I'm at. <laughs> but it's always surprising. I find that like some of the information that sometimes I think we take for granted, even if it's so simple, like some people just like either don't get it or aren't aware of it. I remember probably a year ago or maybe it's a little bit more as a conference and one of the speakers was uh, a professor graham close who is a researcher and like professor in dietics at liverpool john moore's here in the uk and he does a lot of work with professional rugby professional football golf all these sort of things and he was saying about he was chatting to a young probably like late teens academy rugby player so mm -hmm. you know uh, you're taking in a bit too much of like, you know, your protein supplementation. Why don't you just supplement out with some like fish or uh, steak and stuff like that? It's like, but and this kid like retorted back was just like, well, if I don't take my protein shake, how am I going to get protein in my diet? It's just like, mm -hmm. well, obviously you've got your meats, you've got your eggs and all this stuff. And the guy just didn't have a clue. It's crazy, crazy. And you just expect them to know better. Yeah, um, you would hope. Um, sometimes I have to reel myself in. Um, and remember that there's still a lot of people out there who just don't know the basics of nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when I sit down with someone, that's a lot of the conversation too is, you know, I want them to tell me how much they know or how much they don't know. And then we kind of go from there. Cool. So on that then, what do you think are the, like the common faults nutritionally people make in the, in the military? Uh, well, I mean, like I said earlier, like they are still really susceptible to a lot of the trends and a lot of the fads that are out there. Um, one that I deal with pretty frequently actually is under eating or under fueling. Mm -hmm. um, so you would be surprised even with some of the overweight soldiers who come to see me, how much of their um, weight management issues is possibly related to them actually not eating enough. Um, so under eating is something that I deal with a lot. Um, there's, uh, you know, even for individuals who are very fit, very active, um, under fueling, I would say is, is really common. For me then, obviously you've done a lot of work with like conventional forces guys, and obviously some who are prepping to go into special operations. What do you say the main difference are in like the nutritional demands of those who are involved in more conventional forces versus those who are going into special operations? Um, so it's interesting that even in the conventional army, there's a lot of subgroups um, within the conventional army. So, and each one kind of has its different levels and different barriers. Um, so if we're talking about like infantry versus medical units versus like a sustainment unit versus a support unit, um, you know, a, um, enlisted soldiers versus officers. I mean, there's a lot of different variables, even within conventional forces. Um, I would say that um, special operations, one of the things that I've experienced when working with someone who's um, in special operations 
is that they usually have a little bit more experience uh, and even interest in mm -hmm. managing their training and their nutrition really well. So a lot of times, um, special operations soldiers have done a lot of um, self-experimentation already with their nutrition and their training. They've sought out education or just knowledge about nutrition and training already, um, more so than I would say most of the conventional soldiers that I work with. Um, so a lot of times when I'm working with special operations versus a conventional um, soldier, there's uh, there, there's even more emphasis to kind of figure out, you know, what level we're starting at, right? So are we starting with just what is a calorie, what is a macro, or are we now going to start at the level where you already know those things, but now we're going to talk about how to really um, dial in your nutrition based on your daily training routine and what you want. Typically with a special operations soldier, that's usually where we start. They already know those things and we're just trying to dial them in a little bit more. They also tend to be a little bit more um, committed to their programming. They're not so prone to letting other things um, that are important also. So things like family or, or schedules um, or like the day-to-day -day of just being an adult <laughs> kind of get in their way. Whereas conventional soldiers, um, especially if they're married and they have kids and they have other obligations, um, tend to have a little bit more difficulty with prioritizing their health and their performance. Um, so that's one really big difference. Um, conventional forces too, on the other side of that, um, there is a little bit more, I would say, um, ability to long-term plan with their training and their nutrition. Um, whereas a lot, some of the special operations soldiers, um, you know, they're more prone to rapid deployment um, or mobilization. Um, you know, for instance, um, a lot of special operations soldiers, if you're kind of on a quick reaction force, um, you need to be ready to leave, you know, in under 24 hours, right? Um, with a conventional forces soldier, you know, you're usually going to have months ahead of time, um, whether it be for training or for deployments, you're usually going to know well in advance, um, you know, when you're going to leave. So you have a little bit more time to plan around those events as far as uh, your health and your nutrition. Um, special operations, you could walk into work on a Tuesday and they're like, okay, you're going to take a PT test today um, and, and you better be able to pass it right? So, so managing your volume and your nutrition at the special operations level is also a factor to consider. Conventional forces, majority of the time, unless your leadership is just, you know, needing to push things out, um, with conventional forces, a lot of times you're going to have at least a little bit of notice before those things pop off. Um, so, so I would say those are probably some of the major differences is just being able to schedule and plan. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. I think it, that crossover then for the guys who are, say, in conventional forces and want to try out for special operations units, is it a case of getting that education into them so they understand how to periodize their nutrition leading into selection? Or is it like meeting them where they're currently at? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So um, when I teach my pre-ranger course or my pre-ranger class, um, each person is kind of on a different timeline. Some are gonna leave, you know, six months for now, um, and they're just doing this as a train up. Um, some of them may uh, head out on the next 
rotation, which could be a month uh, or two away. Mm -hmm. So, um, so when I'm giving them education on how to train up for that, um, I'm usually covering what an optimal periodization um, cycle leading up to zero day when they leave um, should look like. Um, So we're talking about like health optimization um, at least 90 days out, right? So health optimization is where we're looking at, is our body composition optimized? Do we at least have some routine with our sleep, um, our eating schedule, our training schedule? Um, Are there some underlying nutritional deficiencies we need to address? Vitamin D is usually a big one. Um, and, and we kind of look at those things and make sure that just that general preparedness is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of inside that 90 day window when they're getting ready for train up and they're doing really specific physical training, uh, leading up to zero day, then that's kind of when we look at, you know, are you in a good place with your weight? Has your weight been stabilized and we can, we can keep it stable up to when you leave. Um, we're looking at, you know, are you taking your daily supplementation? Are you, um, are you handling the training along with adequate recovery um, in terms of nutrition and sleep and stress mitigation? Um, we're looking at hydration status. Um, and then where I am, um, the climate is pretty temperate. Um, and where Ranger School is, the climate is very hot and humid the majority of the year. Um, So I do a little bit of education with acclimation um, with the soldiers as well before they leave, kind of talking about what they need to look for, Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that we can do. Um, And then usually the two weeks leading up to zero day, we talk about how to taper properly, Um, you know, making sure that they're not, you know, taking into any alcohol really during that taper period, that they're maximizing their hydration status, that they're resting that their volume of training is staying relatively low so that once they get to ranger school, they can perform physically and they don't have, um, you know, any, any uh, physical overreaching uh, issues, uh, making sure that their CNS has gotten plenty of rest and that they're primed and ready to go mentally and physically. Um, so that's kind of leading up to really any school where you're going to be experiencing a lot of uh, physical stress. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's cool. That gives a really good insight into it. Um, with regards to the body weight side of things, you were saying there, Susan, like body weight and body composition for the guys, especially going into ranger school. Mm-hmm. Obviously, ranger school is a very demanding and arduous course. Would you typically have guys go in a little bit heavier than what their usual weight would be? Because obviously, they're most likely going to drop weight. And I know there's still like a starvation period, is it, to test guys within the ranger school? Yeah, well, I mean, once they get to ranger school, there's going to be definitely long periods where they're only going to be eating one or two uh, meals ready to eat a day, um, mm-hmm. if they're lucky. So um, the average calorie expenditure of an operator who, who's doing high tempo training or operations is going to be somewhere between 7,000 to 10,000 plus calories a day, just depending on, on what the training calls for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their intake on average is going to be somewhere between 2,500 to maybe 3,500 calories a day. So there's a huge discrepancy there in terms of energy availability and energy balance. Um, So usually what happens is in ranger school, some of these guys are going to lose 20 to 30 pounds uh, of weight 
Um, and a lot of that is going to be lean muscle. Um, and right away, if you're not kind of in that sweet spot in terms of your body fat and your lean muscle mass, where you've stabilized your weight before you leave, um, that's going to kind of put you in a bad position once you get there. Um, because the first four days that you're there, it's all physical testing. Um, and uh, so for guys who are really lean, like single digit lean, um, I usually encourage them to actually gain some weight um, and some body fat uh, before they leave. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ideally somewhere around 15 to 17% is ideal going into a school like that. Um, you definitely don't want to be in the single digits because once you start to deplete that muscle glycogen, that energy storage in your muscle, you know, you have to have some fat to dip into for some sustained and prolonged energy. Um, and if you don't have it, um, you're going to be sucking wind um, in a lot of the events that happen. Um, and then, of course, you don't want to be too high in body fat percentage either. Yeah. Um, so kind of during that health optimization phase, looking three plus months out before you go to a school like that, you really want to work on someone with where is your ideal sweet spot for being able to perform well, um, but also stay kind of with, within a healthy body fat percentage, mm -hmm. you know, where's, where are you going to perform the best? Cool. And with regards to going through that preparation stuff there as well, what's your, what's your general thoughts on, you know, soldiers using supplements to help with, you know, balancing out that calorific need or helping support their training goals as well. Do you, uh, promote any supplement use within the guys you work with at all? Um, it, it depends. So when, if we're talking about something like um, whey protein or creatine um, or BCAAs, typically I'm going to recommend food first and yeah. to use those items um, for convenience only. Or if you're in a situation where you can't get enough uh, actual food in. Um, there's a specific time and a reason to use each one of those supplements, um, right? We don't want to just be throwing them into a, into a bottle and, and drinking them just because, um, you know, the guy at the local vitamin shop told us to. Yeah. Um, we, so, so really making sure that they understand why they're using those supplements and when's the appropriate time in their training cycle to use those supplements is important. Uh, and then there's some non-negotiables as well. So I kind of mentioned vitamin D earlier. So that is one that uh, we look heavily at because um, in military athletes, um, bone mineral density is super important mm -hmm. to make sure that we're mitigating any damage, um, especially to new recruits coming in. You know, a lot of the new recruits coming in, they don't get the type of physical activity, weight-bearing training, um, that... Um, a lot of, you know, soldiers got 20 or 30 years ago um, just by, by growing up, right? There's yeah. a lot of video game playing happening. There's a lot of cell phone usage going on. There's a lot of sitting. Um, so, so kind of mitigating uh, any injuries related to bone health is super important. So I'm typically going to recommend that if you're getting ready for school, um, that you get your vitamin D levels tested at least 90 days out. Because if you're deficient, we want to optimize those. We want to look at your calcium intake, supplement calcium if needed, um, and then looking at any other factors that might be impacting your performance and just your general health, right? And 
a simple blood test, it can really be kind of enlightening sometimes as far as what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And what about um, just for overall like uh, joint health? We talked a little bit about vitamin D for maintaining bone health there as well. Do you recommend anything to help um, with the overall health of people's joints, either something like glucosamine or just like, you know, your fish oil sort of stuff? Yeah, definitely fish oil. Fish oil is kind of another one of those that it's going to do probably more. Making sure that you're using a supplement that has been third-party tested is really important. So NSF certified for sports, um, you know, informed sports, um, any, any kind of one of those seals, we make sure yeah. Um, we look at that, you know, cause there have been some horror stories where soldiers are taking supplements. Um, you know, they're not certified. Um, and then you end up popping hot on a drug test. Yeah. Right. Um, because there's, there's something in there that looks like a drug, right. That's happened in the past. Um, so you got to be really careful there. Um, let's see, uh, as far as joint health goals, um, fish oil will probably be my number one. Um, you could do glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, the jury's kind of still out on that, right? So like whenever you look at research, there's always some research that shows a benefit, some research that shows it doesn't. It's definitely not going to be harmful if you take it, in my opinion. Um, but we look at, you know, one, are you training appropriately, right? Because um, that's a big factor in joint health is making sure that you're progression of training and, and you know this of course um is appropriate but then also just that your day-to-day -day nutrition is appropriate mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so always food first and then supplementation is really there to just kind of cover your bases that's cool awesome thank you very much for that susan um obviously for one one of the uh the big uh listener groups we have for the podcast here are people involved within first uh, first responder organizations mm -hmm. So within the police, uh, the military, uh, sorry, police, fire, and paramedic service. So I was just wondering what recommendations you could give to these guys, just around, you know, how they can effectively manage their energy balance throughout their shift. So they've got that balance throughout, and if there would be any major changes for you between the guys who are working, say, a day shift uh, versus those who are going on to a night shift. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, first. Mm -hmm someone who doesn't maybe have the opportunity to sit down and eat regular meals um, or maybe they're doing a lot of sitting in a patrol car um, or something like that um, kind of understanding your energy in and energy out is definitely something that we work on um, also helping them be more uh, aware of just you know when they should be taking in more energy um, when they should be taking in less um, working on nutrient timing with them mm -hmm. um, to kind of help optimize uh, their training and their body composition. Um, when I'm working with someone, understanding their hunger signaling, I think is really important. Um, so I work with people a lot on understanding the difference between needing to eat because you're physiologically hungry um, or learning to eat on a schedule in anticipation of hunger and nutritional needs. Um, emotional eating is a big one, right? Mm -hmm. So boredom. Um, yeah. You know, I've come across a lot of people who will just, you know, they just they just eat because it just it feels good. Yeah. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But again, just creating some self awareness around that is really important. Um, in shift workers or anybody who works kind of odd hours or would normally be awake when we're sleeping and whatnot. Um, 
this can definitely have an impact on hormone levels, um, cortisol patterns. Um, so uh, kind of helping them create a routine um, is, is super important. Um, so for instance, you know, if you're working a night shift, when you get up for your night shift, you want to treat it just like it would be a regular morning, you know, getting light exposure, um, doing your normal morning routine, um, that kind of thing is really important for helping regulate some of those patterns and rhythms. Yeah. Um, and, and then it really is just kind of up to the individual, um, you know, what they're willing to do and what works for them. So some guys are... I'm going to be single and be able to do everything I tell them to do without any barriers. And, and some are going to have other obligations um, and other priorities. So um, it's, it's a little different for everybody. Obviously maintaining that morning routine for guys going on to, to the night shifts. What about at the back end of that? So say um, if I was a firefighter, I finished up at 7am in the morning, you know, I'm just on my way home. What would be your recommendations that I should, probably take in for that last meal before I put my head down on the pillow, just so one, I've, you know, fueled myself correctly and, you know, I'm not putting any crap into my body before I go to sleep. Yeah. Um, I would say preparing ahead of time is, is mm -hmm. one of the things that we deal with a lot. Um, so one of the pitfalls mm -hmm. of, of kind of a, a situation like that is sometimes on the way home, the most convenient thing available or the only thing sometimes that's open is fast food. Um, you know, so there's, there can be a lot of that happening. So learning how to have easily preparable or already um, prepared meals available to you um, when you're hungry and you don't have to think about it, um, it is super important. Um, so I do work with um, different ways to meal prep um, in ways that are not boring and you know, like I have some people who they're like, I refuse to eat leftovers and meal prep feels like leftovers to me. Okay. So we, we kind of work around some of those barriers. Um, kind of before bed um, and, and really with a lot of your meals, we really focus on appropriate protein intake, when you should be taking in carbohydrates, um, stabilizing blood sugars overnight um, is really important. So I usually do emphasize some type of protein prior to sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, there's also been some research that have shown that this can potentially even improve sleep. Um, so we just kind of work with what are you willing to eat at that time? You know, as an individual, what time is comfortable for you to eat? So if you're just going to go to the house and, and crash immediately, do you really want something sitting in your stomach? Because that digestion rate is going to slow as soon as you go to sleep. And then you're going to, you know, you could experience reflux or that kind of thing. Um, so working on appropriate timing um, and making sure that they're taking in the right nutrients before they go to bed is important. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening will find that interesting and uh, get a lot from that. With regards to anyone who's listening, so what would be your advice? Because obviously you've had quite a varied career and it's um, taking you to where you are at now. If anyone say who would be maybe starting to go down the nutrition route to go to college and stuff like that to potentially join up into the military as a performance uh, dietitian. What would be your advice and steps, you know, to follow in your footsteps? I get the experience um, working within that community, um, even if it's unpaid, you know, so um, one of the things that I hear a lot from um, 
tacticians um, in regards to working with dietitians is a lot of times they feel like dietitians just don't get them. Um, they don't really understand the work they do. They don't understand the specific barriers that they have to deal with. Um, so, so I think that's really important as a dietitian or really anybody in any field who's looking to work with tactical athletes is you have to be willing to learn about that culture, even assimilate into it a little bit, um, and, and be willing to um, sometimes be uncomfortable um, because these guys are a lot of times are going to be put into situations where they have to get up early in the morning. They're working 12 hour days and, um, you know, they're having to go to the ranges and they're having to go to these trainings and these schools and, and just do things that normal people don't have to do. And if you've never experienced that before, um, it can make it more difficult to connect with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you work in conventional forces or special operations, you do have to earn that trust um, within the tactical community. Um, you know, you kind of have to prove yourself a little bit. And if you haven't experienced what some of some of what these guys go through, then it can be really difficult. So that doesn't mean it can't, um, you know, you can't uh, be in this space if you haven't been in the military or been a police officer or or been a firefighter at one point. Um, it just means you have to be willing to put yourself out there um, and be open to learning things that you don't know by getting that experience um, in the field. That's great advice there, uh, Susan, and I 100, uh, 100% agree with you on that, the ability to assimilate into like a different culture. I know it's helped me in my own career like with different organizations I've worked mm-hmm. for. And it's advice I'd give to any young strength coach out there as well. Love, love knowledge there, love information you've dropped for us today, Susan. So I was just wondering, as I asked all my guests, you know, for their own development, their own CPD, could you give us a, a book, an app, or a website recommendation that you know you found useful for your own education or your own development? Uh, I mean, there, <laughs> there, there's a lot. Um, so I am, I, I, I feel like if you're not learning, you're dying, um, both professionally and personally. So nice. any opportunity I have to learn something new, I jump at it and I'm completely comfortable admitting to my own ignorance if I don't know something. Um, so I would say that book wise, um, Bob Sibahar, um, who's a performance dietitian, has written a couple of great books on um, metabolic efficiency um, and nutrition periodization. Um, Louise Burke, um, uh, she's amazing as well. Um, there's also a book on intuitive eating that doesn't really have anything to do with um, tactical nutrition or sports performance nutrition. Um, but it's a book called Intuitive Eating, and it's by um, a couple of dietitians who focus on using your own internal cues to fuel your body um, and to sort of come to peace with food and cravings and, you know, without kind of being diet obsessed. And I think, um, I think this is really important, even as a performance dietitian, to be aware of how to work with someone with these issues because disordered eating and eating disorders run rampant within the performance world. Um, and the tactical community is not immune to this whatsoever. So, mm-hmm. so that's been a really great one. Um, so many research papers. Um, I, I'm currently finishing my master's actually in exercise science. So, oh, awesome. what about you doing that? <laughs> 
Um, I'm actually doing that at um, Concordia University in Chicago. So I'm doing it online and my focus is actually in strength and conditioning. Nice. Um, I, I have no intention of becoming a strength coach. I'm a dietitian first and foremost, but as a performance dietitian, I think it's really important to understand a lot of the concepts and the principles behind training. Um, and especially because I work so closely with strength coaches, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's, I think it's super important. Um, Nick Berenger, um, who is actually a PhD and I believe is currently a Lieutenant Colonel out of, uh, West Point, um, has done some um, really great research, um, in terms of, uh, military and tactical athletes. Um, so I'm a big fan of his, um, I, I, that's probably my short list. So I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you very much for that, Susan. Um, yeah. Honestly, thank you so much uh, for coming and chatting to us today. If anyone would like to find out a bit more about you or to reach out and get in touch with you, what, what's the best ways they can get in touch with you? Um, the best way to get in touch with me is to hit me up on Instagram. Um, so I'm on Instagram as at tactical.dietitian. Um, I also, you can check out my website at www.tacticaldietitian.com. Um, I also, um, have a small podcast that I kind of play around with. So if any, anybody is interested in learning more about, um, performance nutrition, um, it's also out there. So it was originally called the performance dietitian podcast, but this season we're kind of taking it in a different direction. Um, and going to be focusing primarily on tactical nutrition and performance. Um, so that is available on Spotify and iTunes. Sweet. No problem. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Susan. I'll make sure I will pop all those details into our show notes along with the, um, the, the book recommendations you gave there as well. So thank you very much for that. And once again, Susan, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you've got a busy schedule. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.